I heard a quote this week on a podcast. They were talking about books. And somebody said, a good book is one that makes you laugh sometimes, makes you cry sometimes, and at other times makes you want to throw it across the room. When I heard that quote, I have to be honest, it reminded me of the Bible. Many times when I read the Bible, it has humor in it. It makes me cry. It makes me self-reflect. And sometimes I want to throw it across the room. And the reason is because the Bible is not like any other book. Because the Bible is the word of God that brings life. And it brings real change in your life. Because the Bible exposes us for who we really are. It exposes our deep desires. It exposes our deep hurts. It exposes our deep insecurities, our self-centeredness, our shortcomings, our fears. It reveals the curve of our heart. If you remember a few weeks ago, I had you all do this because that is our natural curve of our heart. And the Bible bends our heart toward God. Because it shows us the love of God. It shows us the justice of God. It shows shows us the sovereignty of God, his control over all things, his wisdom and his goodness. The Bible shows us the grace of Jesus Christ. And the Bible shows us the peace and power of the Holy Spirit. My father came in here uh, earlier this week, and we were talking about the church and, of course, and the way it's laid out the pews. And of course, I dismissed my father because that's what sons do. They dismiss their fathers. And then when they start thinking about their father and what he said, they think, oh, maybe he's not as dumb as I think he is. My dad made this excellent point. This church is laid out a certain way. In fact, historically, churches looked like this. They have an aisle here and an aisle here, but they do not have an aisle in the middle. And the reason is it's a symbol It's a symbol that you sit under the word of God. Because I stand here, the pulpit is here, the word of God is here, and I'm not preaching to an aisle, I'm preaching to you. It's a symbol that you sit, we sit under the word of God. Why am I talking about this? Because it's really important, because the passage I'm about to read is really hard. It's hard for us to understand And when we read passages like this, there's a tendency to say, I don't want to believe the Bible. I don't want to believe the Bible in this area. When we come to a passage that I'm about to read, it needs to mold us, and it needs to shape us, and it needs to bend us back to God. Because only then is there real change in our life. So I'm going to read this passage to us from 1 Peter chapter 2. And then I'm going to pray, because if God doesn't help us, if he doesn't open up our eyes to this passage, then the book is dead. So hear these words, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respects, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing When mindful of God, when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to make this word alive to us. We need you to open up our, the eyes of our heart. We need you to bring us new life so that we can see Jesus in this passage as the beautiful suffering Savior that he is. And then we need you to transform our lives so that we will look more like Christ when we leave this place than when we came in. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Peter has been writing to his friends. We are almost halfway through this book, in fact, this letter. He's been writing to the elect exiles, these people who have been scattered throughout Asia Minor, these people who have uh, been scattered because of their belief in Jesus, others that have become Christians in their different cities that they live in. And Peter has been telling them what they believe. And he's been telling us what we believe And we believe in a risen Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, God incarnate, raised from the dead for us. And when we believe in him, now we have a new life. We have a living hope. We have a real future. And now we have a different perspective, a new perspective on the life that we live. Peter is telling us and has been telling us that this living hope comes with three different marks. The first is that in this living hope, we are united with Christ which means now we share in his sufferings and now we live by grace, not by works. Peter says we believe this because we have tasted the goodness of God, the God who calls you chosen and precious and beloved all because of Jesus. Therefore, we live differently. Last week we saw the first way we live differently, the so what Of the gospel and how the gospel shapes our life when it comes to how we live before the world and how we live under corrupt governments. We now seek to honor everyone, even those who govern over us who are evil. We seek to love each other because as we love each other, we are a witness to this world and we fear God. And the way we do that is through repentance, through asking God to change our minds to change our hearts so that then we can do good works. Now Peter moves in his letter to another major place where the gospel shapes us, at home. The home for the Roman Empire was actually a major building block of that society. Philosophers like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato wrote a lot about the home because an unruly home would lead to an unruly society. 
The Roman Empire, though, was highly patriarchal. It had a male-centered home. In fact, we're going to see this in the next couple sections of Peter's letter. He is writing to a culture that is male-dominated. And in that male-dominated home, everyone else was oppressed. Peter talks about these three units that happen in the home. He talks about the servant and the master. Next week, we're going to see how he talks about wives and husbands. And in two weeks from now, we're going to hear him talk about children and the reason why he is looking at the home. It's not to give some like socially acceptable way to live. It's not to give some do's and don'ts. It's not to give some moral living. It's to show that Christians think differently and they act differently and they love differently especially when things are difficult. And in the home of a Christian, back when Peter was writing, there was a lot of difficulty. So today we're going to look at servants and masters. We're going to look at their relationship. But we're going to look at something deeper than just how servants are supposed to respond to masters. We're going to look at how we are supposed to respond to unjust suffering at the hands of others. And we're going to see three things from this passage. That we need to face our suffering, we need to trace our suffering, and we need to embrace our suffering. So the first is facing our suffering. Peter uses this this paradigm of servant and master relationship to show us something deeper about how we're supposed to view and live in suffering. Verse 18, he starts off with saying servants. Historians believe that slaves or servants made up about 16 to 20% of the Roman Empire. There was a lot of slaves, a lot of servants. They were the lowest social structure. And the slaves of the Roman Empire, though, they were very different than the slaves of, say, the American slavery or the European slavery. Roman slaves were of all race and all color, and tribe. They were usually people that the Romans conquered. There was a variety of slaves. Some of them were very educated and they were given high tasks in society, but many of them were looked down upon and treated very poorly. The ones that Peter is writing to are the house slaves. These house slaves were the lowest of the low. Perhaps you've seen Harry Potter and you know who Dobby is. He is a house slave. Think about that. That's the image That Peter is pulling to mind here. The image of the lowest of the low. These people were property of the home and property of the master. He's writing to these servants though. And that says something. It means that some of these servants became Christians. And maybe as Christians they think now they are free from their masters. But in fact, Peter says, no, you're not free from your masters. You're free in Christ. And now you have to honor your masters, especially those that are unjust and are cruel. Peter is telling them that under their current condition, they need to be submissive to their masters. Peter is telling them they need to face their suffering. Now, I want to be clear, because this passage has been used throughout all of history, and especially American history, to oppress others, especially during the American slave trade. This passage was used to do horrible things to Africans that were brought to this country. Slavery is an abomination. 
and is condemned by the Bible. It is not endorsed by the Bible. And therefore, we should stand against all sorts of slavery. The slavery that America, along with many European countries, engaged in rested in horrible and horrific practices, and the Bible does not endorse it. And it has left a stain on this country, as long as, as, along with many other countries. The slaves, though, that Peter is writing to are in a little bit of a different situation. They are locked into a social system that Peter recognizes leads to many injustices. Many times throughout history, Christians are called to live within cruel, unjust social systems, systems that they cannot change. But Peter gives them hope, and he gives us hope in this passage. First of all, he names them. He says servants. He addresses a part of a letter to the lowest, the lowest of the social stratus. He addresses them, and in that, he gives them dignity and he gives them hope. He is saying to the most vulnerable segment of the society, you are seen, God sees you. So when you suffer unjustly, that is grace from God for you. It isn't God's judgment to you. It isn't God punishing you. It's God drawing you close to himself. God is God even over unjust social systems. Therefore, he says, you can endure unjust suffering because God is with you. He hasn't forgotten you. He sees you. He's a little cheeky here in verse 20 because he says, if you look at it with me, he says in verse 20, for what credit is, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He says, if you do bad things, you're going to get bad prizes. But when you do good things and you are still treated unjustly and you suffer, that is what God looks at with grace and mercy. They can face their suffering because God says when you face your suffering, you can look upon Jesus Christ. Peter is saying their suffering is a good and gracious thing from God because it reminds them of Jesus. So how does this connect to you and me? It connects to you and me because we experience unjust suffering in this world. We experience it at the hands of others. We experience it at work. You experience it in your friendships. I know some of you are experiencing it from your families. There are those in this room who are suffering unjustly at the hands of others. I want to make it clear. If you are in an abusive relationship, you can leave. You do not have to stay. You have the right to leave and you do not have to put up with that. You are not a slave to anyone. But that is not what Peter is saying here. He is telling us that in the face of other sufferings, sufferings of all types, sufferings where we are spoken poorly about, spoken poorly to, where we suffer all sorts of things, whether that's health, whether that's um, different circumstances in your jobs, in your families, he says you can face them as you look to Christ, and then you can trace them when you look at his example. Facing your sufferings takes tracing your sufferings. Now, I use that word trace because I literally mean trace, like with your finger. So if you take your bulletin, turn it to the front page. On the front page is our logo. 
Now, part of our logo, part of, our, of what we want to be known for is the cross. I want you to take your finger, and I want you to trace that cross bar on the cross. Because our sufferings are horizontal. Our sufferings are here and now. Our sufferings are things that you experience in your day-to-day. Maybe some of you have experienced suffering in the past. Maybe you are experiencing suffering now. Or you will be heading into suffering eventually. But it is here. It is in this world. There are many ways that people deal with sufferings. Everyone in this room has a theology of suffering. But not all theologies of sufferings are good. The Bible teaches that God is fully engaged in your suffering. God is over your suffering. He allows your suffering to happen in order to reveal his glory and to gather his people. God did not create this world, the Bible teaches us, to suffer. He created this world perfect with no tears and no sadness and no suffering. But through our rebellion, through our desire to be God, through our disobedience that we call sin, suffering entered this world. But God knew that. He knew that that was going to happen, and he is in control of it all. There's a story that I heard, and in fact, my mother told me a very similar story to this. It's a story of a woman who goes to a hospital because she hears about her son in a terrible car accident. And when she gets there, by the time she gets there, tragically, her son has died. And as she's sitting there in the waiting room, her pastor shows up. And he puts his arm around her. And he says, I'm so sorry for your loss. God had nothing to do with this. And she turned to him and she said, don't take that from me. He is my only hope. He is in control of everything, even this, or he's in control of nothing. When we trace our suffering horizontally, it doesn't always make sense, right? Why do people walk into schools and shoot up children? Why do children get cancer and die? Why are people killed in car accidents? Why is there suicide? When we trace that Line, that horizontal line of suffering, there are a lot of questions of why. Why is this happening? What is the purpose? Does God even care? Where is he in all of this? And that is why we trace not just horizontally, but also vertically. As we trace vertically, we see the cross. Because that is what Peter tells us to do. In verse 21, he says this, You are called to face suffering, because Christ also suffered for you. And then he says this interesting line. He says, leaving you an example. I actually think this is like the core, the kernel of this whole verse, is that line, leaving you an example. The word example in Greek means hypogrammon. Hypogrammon was like a, a teaching tool that teachers would use to help their students learn the alphabet. And what they would do is they would trace the letters of the alphabet. Now, I know about hypogrammon because, believe it or not, I was not a very bright student. And I was a slow learner. 
And my mother is a teacher, and she spent many hours with me teaching me my name. And eventually I learned it when I was 16. No, I wasn't. I was a lot younger. I was younger than that. I was seeing if you guys were awake. And so what she would do is she would trace my name, and it would be a circle, and down up, down up, and it was a table, throw the cloth over. My mom is mouthing the words with me, like I don't remember. And a bridge. And one day, I was out in the yard playing, and there was a, a visitor, somebody visiting my neighbor, and I was talking to him through uh, the fence, and I was young. And he said, he says, well, what's your name? And I said, my name's Owen. And he said, how do you spell that? And I said, circle, down up, down up, table, throw the cloth over, and a bridge. I tell you that story, not just because it is a funny story and a cute story, but this is exactly what Peter is saying we need to do in our suffering. We trace the cross in our life. We, we acknowledge this is hard, and I don't know why this is happening to me. And God, where are you? And then we remember, oh God, you are with me. Because you are the suffering God, the one who suffered for me. And you have made a way now through my suffering that now my suffering has purpose. We trace that out always in our lives. Look at what he says here. Because at the cross we see the suffering servant who is Christ, the one who suffered the greatest injustice. He was perfect, and yet he died the death of a lying, stinking, wicked criminal. Look at what Peter writes here. In verse 22, he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then look at what he does. He bears our sins. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins in that tree so that we might live to righteousness. And by his wounds, we are healed. Our Christ knows what suffering is. As we trace the cross in our suffering, we see that Christ, what Christ did for us, the unjust suffering he endured, he trusted God, that God would do what is right. Peter is calling you and me to face our suffering and in facing our suffering to trace our suffering and to trust in God in our suffering. The ancient church, the medieval church actually, used to call this the cruciformed life. I was talking about the symbolism of the way that these pews are laid out. Well, in the medieval times, they used to build churches in the middle of towns and in the middle of cities, and they would look like a cross. And that was because in the middle of these towns and cities, there was Jesus, People used to go to church, not to figure out how to live their best life now. People used to go to church to find an explanation for their suffering. Why do I keep losing children? Why did my husband die at 33? Why is there plagues in our land? They would go to church to hear the good news 
that Jesus knows their suffering, and their suffering is not forever. That's why churches not only were in the shape of a cross, but also surrounded by cemeteries, so you had to walk through death to get to life. And then you would take life back to the dead. As you would walk into church, imagine we would live here. Imagine we all lived here for generations. You would walk through, and there's a tombstone or the headstone of your child that died, of your husband, of your wife who died, of your loved ones who died. You would go to church because in church, in this word, there was an answer to your suffering. Suffering is so adverse in our culture. We try to avoid it or minimize it. We do not see the value of it. And Peter is saying there is great value in suffering. Peter is telling these servants and he's telling you and me that our suffering needs to be faced as a gracious act of God who is drawing us closer to himself and then traced in the light of Jesus' suffering on the cross and then we can embrace our suffering because it's, it's not us doing the work. It's God working in us. Facing our suffering, tracing our suffering, and lastly, embracing our suffering. Peter ends this passage with a double down on Jesus. How do you face your suffering? How do you face the unjust things that happen to you? The pain, the hurt, the tears? How do you trace the cross in your pain? You keep your eyes on Jesus and you remember who you are and whose you are. There's an interesting grammatical change in this last, in this last uh, couple of verses. He goes from the first person to the second person. He says this, He himself bore our sins in his body that we might die. Look at Christ. Look at his body broken, nailed to a cross, whipped, crown of thorns shoved on his head. Everyone look at the sword shoved in his side, the spit and the blood and the sweat dried on his face as he hung on that tree, on that cross, a punishment reserved for slaves and criminals. Everyone, head up, look at Jesus who bore all your sins. Fix your eyes on him in his suffering because his eyes are fixed on you. He changes the tense to the second tense. You, by his wounds, you are healed. By his wounds, Owen is healed. Put your name in there. By his wounds, your name, you are healed. How do you embrace suffering? By remembering that our Christ's wounds heal us and our wounds connect us. Connect us to him. For you were like a sheep, but now you're found. You have been returned to your shepherd. So now we are found by the one who is our shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? He cares for his flock. He provides for his flock. He protects his flock. And what does it say here at the end? He's not just our shepherd, but our overseer. 
That word is such an interesting word. It's episkopos. Episkopos is also the word for bishop. But the root word is scopus. And this is important. Scopus, like a microscope or a telescope. Something that is really focused. I have my parents living with me for a week. I feel that scope on my life as parents watch you in everything you do. This is that word. Epi is intensity. There's an intensity here. Not just an overseer as in like removed, but an overseer like intently looking at you, especially in your suffering, especially in your pain. You have a Jesus who empathizes, who sees you, who draws near to you. Jesus is looking right at you intensely as beloved, as suffering in your suffering. My friends, we can embrace our suffering because our suffering is now sharing with Christ. It unites us with him. But it doesn't just unite us with him. It also unites us with each other. In John 15, Jesus says, you're going to be hated by this world. You are going to experience suffering in this world. But you are not alone. I'm sending one, the Holy Spirit. Today we, uh, is, is Pentecost. It's the day that the Holy Spirit descended on his church. And Jesus makes this promise that the Holy Spirit will be with us. And what does the Holy Spirit bring in your suffering? Comfort. Listen to these words. One of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercies and God of all, listen to this, comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in their affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. My friends, that is the good news that when you suffer unjustly, you are not suffering alone. You have a God who sees you, who looks upon you. And so now you can't endure by facing your suffering, by tracing your suffering in the light of the cross, and by embracing your suffering and be comforted so that you can be a comfort to others. And this is why we come to the table. Because at the table, we experience this unity with Christ in his suffering. And we experience the profound comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that feeds our faith in God's goodness to us. So let's go to the table now and taste the goodness of God. Lord God, we thank you for your word that we seek to live under and we need your word to break us. And if there's those here this morning that are suffering, we need your word to comfort us. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering the greatest suffering by going to that cross for us. And so, as we come to the table now, remind us of that. Remind us of your great love for us. Let us keep our eyes on you, especially in hard times and suffering days. And Lord, Teach us how to trace that suffering through the cross and see it as sharing with you in your love 
and in your grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen.